to encounter. We're so happy that you're here with us because this is our series called We Are Four. And the idea of this series, just as a reminder to some of you who may have been away, in case you're new with us as well, is that the church, the whole church, not just this one, is often known for what it's against. And so we want to take this opportunity to stand up and speak up about what we are for. So we were for things like keeping Jesus at the center. Last week, as we heard, we are for doing life together. And this week, we are for loving where we live, even even if we don't always like it all the time. So I want to talk this morning about some of you maybe who are passing through. Maybe you're a student in Grand Rapids for a little while. Maybe you're here on work and it's a stepping stone to the next thing. Maybe you're here and you're looking at the weather outside and you're thinking, this is pure Michigan. I'm not sure that I like it, but, but here around Encounter Church, we love it here. We love where we live. Okay, so this... Um, this story is uh, it's about five years ago now. There was this pe- church pastor, Jay Pathick, his name was, and he's in the Denver, uh, Colorado area, uh, just outside. And, and this guy wrangles up about a couple of dozen other church leaders, and they have a sit-down meeting with the mayor of their city. And, and their idea is to ask this mayor, like, like what program like, we should implement together, or maybe what new ministry we should start up, or, or maybe what program or what ministry that's already going could we like band together and do a better job with. And so they sit down and start pitching these ideas to the mayor and the mayor goes, listen, wait a second here, guys. I don't think what we need is another ministry or what we need is another program. He said, because what I've noticed is that relationships beat programs every single day of the week. And so the mayor went on to talk about, you know, what would just be amazing? What would be just utterly and completely transforming to the neighborhoods around here, to the communities around here, and even to this city, is if our people, your people, the people sitting in your pews, in your chairs, whatever it may be, on your couches, is if all the people in churches on the weekends would get outside of those churches and start to meet some of the people that they live nearby, some of their neighbors. He goes, the mayor went on to, to explain that. You know, you know when, people, when people know each other in a community, they actually tend to live longer and better lives. He goes, when, when communities are made up of people who know each other's names, we see crime rates go down to 60% less than communities where people don't know each other's names. And he goes, did you know the first, after a natural disaster, the first responders on scene is definitely not FEMA. It's not the American Red Cross. The first responders onto a scene after a natural disaster isn't always even the local fire and police departments. The first responders after a local disaster is often neighbors. Neighbors getting outside of their houses and going and, and meeting one another. And so he said, what would just be utterly transforming to this city is if the people in our churches and our chairs and couches and pews got outside and actually started meeting and caring for each and every single one of our neighbors. And the pastors like walked away from this meeting and they're like, that's an incredible vision. I can't wait to get started on that one. But at the same time, feeling somewhat convicted that what this mayor had just laid out is essentially due The second thing that they're supposed to be doing all along, which is love God, and the second one is love your neighbor. But a lot of us are at a significant disadvantage here. And so I want to talk to to those of you, those of us, 
because I'm in this group as well, who maybe grew up in church. Maybe this is like, you know, this is kind of normal for you. You read the Bible stories. You did the Sunday school lessons. Um, if, you're, if you're new to this whole thing, you're at a huge advantage because when I ask you the question, who is my neighbor? Those of you who are not in the church, usually you're like, I don't know. They're your neighbors. John? I'm guessing, like, like, right? But those of you who grew up in church, right? Like, you know, when I ask that question, who is my neighbor? You know that it's a trick question. <laughs> you know that the answer to that one is everyone. Everyone is my neighbor. Well, actually, when Jesus said this story, uh, the Good Samaritan story, where we get that from in uh, Luke chapter 10, we're not going to do that today. You can look that one up on your own. Uh, he didn't say everyone is your neighbor. He said the one who has need is your neighbor more specifically, because I think Jesus knew even way back then, he looked ahead at us today and he said, this is the problem. If you're a note-taking kind of person, maybe get that pen out because this is going to be insightful. It's not mine. It's, it's borrowed. And we'll get to that in a minute because this is the problem. When everyone is your neighbor, it often means that no one is. When we define neighbor as every single person in the whole world, all the billions and billions of us, it often actually means no one is my neighbor, because I'm so preoccupied, and I'll just speak personally, with my neighbor who lives 10,000 miles away on another continent and the needs that she or he has that I tend to overlook and not even think about my actual literal neighbor, people living to the left and to the right and to the across the street of me. Who is my neighbor and how do I love them? We're talking this morning about how to love where we live, even when we're passing through how to love our neighbor, even if, and this is so hard, but so good, even if we don't always like where we live or my neighbor. And to answer that question, I want to go to a place in the Bible that God, I think, specifically points towards how do we love where we live when we don't necessarily like where we live or see us the selves there long term. So I invite you to turn uh, to Jeremiah chapter 29, the page numbers on the program. By the way, there's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. You actually, uh, fun fact, you can't steal those because we give them away every single week. Uh, they just sort of like mysteriously disappear. And we absolutely love that. So go ahead. If you don't have a Bible at home or if you like ours better, take it with you. That's a gift. It is not stolen. I've seen people walking around with them and I love that. That's so awesome. Uh, the words are also going to be on the screen behind me as well. We're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 29 and start off in verse 4 where it says, this, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, to all those I carried into exile in two cities from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, you don't have to be like an expert in ancient Middle Eastern geography to kind of get what this means, but it helps. <laughs> when he's talking about Jerusalem and Babylon, see, these are, these are two historical cities, but they're also serving as like stand-ins for something so much more. See, Jerusalem was the capital of the people of God, the Israelites, the Jewish people. Jerusalem was their capital city, and it was called then, as it's sometimes called today, the holy city. It wasn't like necessarily more holy than all the other parts of creation that God made, but it had this reputation of being the place that if there should be a set-apart or holy or special place where, where God was somehow more uniquely present than he was in the world, if there was such a place, it should be in Jerusalem. That seems like the kind of city where that should be the case, where everything is just sort of firing on, in on earth as it is in heaven. Jerusalem serves as the stand-in for like 
what heaven on earth should be like back then. Now, Babylon, if Jerusalem is serving as like heaven on earth at this time, Babylon would serve as the opposite. Babylon would serve as something like hell on earth because Babylon is used in the Bible as like the stand-in for any time that injustice is carried out, for any time that there is suffering, particularly needless suffering among the people. Babylon is used as the stand-in for any time the system or the governance or the leaders are corrupt or any time things aren't working and there's disorganization, there's disarray, and there's disrespect, it's happening in Babylon, it seems like, throughout the Bible. Babylon serves as a stand-in for hell on earth if Jerusalem serves as a stand-in for heaven on earth. And what we're going to see in this story is Jeremiah is a prophet speaking the words of God on behalf of God, and he's saying, what happens when Babylon, of all places, attacks and actually triumphs over Jerusalem? Because what had just happened in recent memory, months, maybe years, but probably not, what had just happened is hell on earth had just overtaken heaven. And you can understand the people's confusion as they're dragged off and carted off, as the Bible tells us, into exile and living right on the edge of hell on earth. And I, and I mean on the edge. Uh, they're living now, the people, uh, all, all, the, all the skilled tradespeople, uh, people that know how to swing a hammer or fix a pipe, uh, the professionals in the town and the royal family, anybody who has anything to offer has been taken from Jerusalem and is now settled on the edge of Babylon. If you kind of like imagine Babylon like a city map over in the northwest, there's going to be a river. It's actually a man-made canal that sort of serves as like the end point of the city proper. It's called the, the Kephar Canal. And the Jewish people, when they were carted off into exile, they had to live in Babylon, but they decided to settle. Now, on the, at the very, very edge of Babylon, just outside, just across the river in the Kephar Canal. Now, the reason why I'm, I'm saying this, the reason why I think it's, it's maybe important to us is because, is because God said that this didn't happen by accident. You know, the people were lamenting and the people were sad and the people were understandably upset when the Babylonians attacked them, destroyed their city and carried off the who's who of anybody who has anything or is anything. But now we read in the text, as we just read verse four, is that God says, they didn't just carry you off. God says, I carried you off. I have a purpose for you here. I brought you you to the edge of hell to settle there. And they settle in a place where there's a river between them and the city proper. So they could technically say, yeah, I live here, but they don't actually live there. And if you're looking for a place to read yourself into the story, I think this is it. Because I'd be surprised if many of you have canals that you've dug between your home and the rest of the city. If you do, I would love, my son would love to come and check it out. If you have like a moat around your house, that would be awesome. I don't, I don't think that you have like a canal between you and the rest of the city, but we build our Kephar canals. We build our rivers to block us off from the rest. What I'm talking about 
As we build back decks, myself included, we, we play outside, we hang out outside in the backyard. We build, many of us, privacy fences along the edges of our property so that we can make sure that we don't accidentally look over and see our neighbors or have them accidentally see us. We migrate from the front yard and front porch to the back deck and backyard. We hang out in basements. We hang out in living rooms. We build little homes for our cars so that we can go to work and back while staying inside all the time so we don't, again, accidentally make eye contact with somebody that we didn't intend to make eye contact with, right? We build our canals. We build our rivers so that we can say we're in a place without actually being in a place. And now I would like to challenge that, if I could, this morning, to speak those words of Jeremiah speaking on behalf of God to say, I think that that's a mistake. I think that God has brought you to a particular place for a reason. And the reason, as we're going to see digging into this, is not to abandon or live on the edge. Again, if you're a note-taking kind of person, we're going to make three because good things always come in three. The first thing that God has you here is to engage it. Engage the people there. And the second one is to resist something that is happening there. And the third one that we're going to see is to love that place, love those people, love where you live unconditionally as God has loved unconditionally. The first one is about engaging. Listen to this in verse 5, kind of reading right on in the passage where Jeremiah is speaking to the people now in exile, if you can believe that. He says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry Have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that that they too may have sons and daughters, grandchildren we're talking about. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. I did a quick little kind of research and saying like, what in the world would they even be, be planting there? Because in Michigan, we grow zucchini. I mean, like all over. I see people hanging out in the back. It's like we've got a whole produce store because you just once you plant zucchini, you cannot physically consume the kind of amounts of zucchini that grow in a garden at a time. But it's like here, and then it's, it's gone, right? It's like one season. It's not, it doesn't take long time to grow zucchini. In Babylon, where he's like, plant gardens and settle, they're not planting zucchini. They're probably planting olive trees, This isn't something you plant at the beginning of a season and give away to all of your friends and just like force it on them by the end of the season like zucchini. We're talking about something that takes minimum five, usually 12 years in order to grow and consume, to eat. You just like have this picture of settle in and and have kids and have grandkids. I mean, he's, he's preparing them to settle in a place in exile for 70 years. He's talking about decades that they're going to be here. So it's like, you might as well get comfortable in, in, in exile. And that's what I want to tell you. I, I want to tell you that wherever you are, however long you're, you plan to be there, I want to say engage. Like really live there. Get comfortable. Engage the people there. Don't pull away. Don't decrease, but increase there. And and connect with the people living in that place. I think that God has you there for a reason. 
I, I want to define neighbor this morning, and we're going to do something a little counter-church cultural and say neighbor for at least this morning is not 10,000 miles away, the person living on another continent somewhere. I want you to think about your literal neighbor, like the people living on the sides of you, across the street from you, or behind you. Now, a lot of this content that I'm just about to share with you, um, by the way, comes from this book called The Art of Neighboring. And so if you are like picking this up and you're reading through it and you're like, hey, that sounds a lot like what Dirk said on Sunday. I can't believe they stole it from him. Yeah, <laughs> me neither. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's called The Art of Neighboring. And, uh, and it's available, by the way, at the starting point in the back. And I think it'd be so cool if, uh, if some of you were like, you know what, I want to commit to being the kind of neighbor and engage my neighbors like God would have me engage. And so I'm gonna start a small group or something like that, right? I, I want some accountability and we are gonna practice the art of neighboring together. That would just, that would be sweet. That's as good as it gets around here as far as like church, churches and stuff. So it's at the starting point. There's a bunch of copies of these, these books. If you hang around like awkwardly late today, we'll probably just give one to you to be honest with you. But if you commit to joining a group, then we'll definitely give one to you. Let's, let's, let's do that. Um, so this, this book here, you can see like, on the cover, we've just got uh, just some squares. There's a square in the middle, and then there's squares kind of on every side. And it said, this is the idea. Uh, the idea is just, first of all, to identify who your neighbors are. Now, the book takes neighboring very, very literally with like who you live nearby. But I want to kind of expand that this morning and say, there are so many different kinds of neighbors. And maybe it'd be cool if we just picked one type of neighbor to practice the art of neighboring with. And so this could be like, so some of you kids, you're in school right now, and your desks are maybe at tables or in rows or some semicircles or something, and you have a neighbor ahead of you and behind you on the left and on the right, kitty corners in every direction. Practice this art of neighboring by getting to know the people around you. Uh, you might live in a housing situation where you've got a bunch of housemates. Practice the art of neighboring with them, or even in your literal neighborhoods. One thing that was kind of cool is I just like at the at the first uh, worship experience here um, together. I said, you know what? There's like tons of pe tons of people here, hundreds of people that gather here and 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 worship together all the time. And um, I'm not going to make you do anything weird. I promise. That's just totally optional. But like I just said, I notice that I don't know a lot of your names. You know, I'm still working on that. A lot of you are realizing, like, you know, he, he doesn't, you know? But, but I know where you sit, <laughs> right? Like, that's crazy because, because, like, I know some of you, I'm like, I'm not sure what your name is, but I know I could identify your seat on a Sunday morning because you come in and you sit in the same exact spot every single week. And I'm not making fun of you. I do the same thing. This is my seat right over here. And you guys know that. I will ask you to move if, I'm not gonna ask you, please don't. <laughs> Please don't do that. But, uh, but, but like we each, we have our seats. And so I thought like, what, it, like, what if we practice the art of neighboring with the people that we go to church with? Because chances are, if you pay attention, you'll probably see the same maybe 10 or so people sitting around you on a week-to-week -week basis. And so I said this uh, earlier this morning. Somebody came up to me afterwards. They're like, you know, this is the craziest thing. After, after church, as we were leaving, I just introduced myself to somebody. And, uh, you know, as it turns out, like, I'm from Manistee. They're from Manistee. Like, I love sailing. He's got a boat. We're going sailing. Land. They invited me over for Thanksgiving. We have summer plans with them. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> this is so... So if any of you have a cottage in a sailboat, like, let me... No, I'm sorry. <laughs> right, but this is like the power of the, like the art of neighboring. Like, how cool would that be? Right? So the first thing you get out there, 
And, and you introduce, and this is kind of like from the book here, just introduce your name. So the idea is whether it's church, whether it's school, whether it's the actual literal neighborhood that you live in is simply turning a wave and saying hi and getting to know their name and saying hi, whatever that person's, whatever that name is. So for me in my neighborhood, I'm not exaggerating and making this up. I have four neighbors all named Mike, four of them. I have like one neighbor that's not named Mike and I mess it up all the time. It's very confusing, but it's also very convenient at the same time. And me and my son Colin's middle names are Michael. So there's just like a ton around and it's kind of weird. But anyway, the idea here, practicing the art of neighbor, engage where we live, loving where we live, is simply turning a high into a high mic. And then a high mic turns into high mic. I have a project in my garage that I'm working on or in my basement. Like, could you come and help me out with this thing for just a little while? It's kind of counterintuitive to like ask for help. Uh, we don't like to do that all the time. We like to, like, I'll help you, you know, if you need it. I don't want to ask. But think of like Jesus, John chapter four. He sits down next to the well in the middle of the day and this woman comes at noon when it's super hot out and Jesus is like, hey, could you help me out? Could you get me something to drink? Like Jesus gets this art of neighbor. Hey, could you come and help me out? Start talking to Mike in the garage. You start have, having this project, right? And then a little while later, like that turns into, you know, wave, hi, hi, Mike. Hi, Mike, we help each other now. Hi, Mike, I noticed that your grown kid moved out and now he's back in. How's that going? That's being a neighbor. Whether it happens at church, whether it happens at school, whether it happens in your literal neighborhood, it's that kind of care. It's that kind of depth of interaction, of intentionality that could transform a neighborhood, or a school, or a community, or a city, or the world in which we live. That's the goal. Practicing the art of neighboring, first of all, simply engage. But when you do, and this is gonna be so hard for some of us to hear, when you do, there's going to be something, there's gonna be something there that God is gonna ask you to leave behind. There's going to be something there that God is going to ask you, number two, to resist. Listen to what he says. Jeremiah 29, we're going to go to verse seven now. And he says, seek the, the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into, help me out here, into exile. May you never forget this is not your home. However much you love who you live with, you love where you live, may you never forget you are not a citizen of this place. The word for exile here is, may you not forget, you are a resident alien. Remember, this is not your home. Paul says to the church in Philippians chapter three, Paul says, he says that all of you, you are citizens of heaven. And the, the idea that comes out of that, and Paul later says, is that you are an ambassador of Christ in this world. Citizens of another place living in this place. The best picture that we have for something like this is an actual ambassador. And the best ambassadors that we see in the world, the people who carry this out the very, very best, are citizens of country A living in country B. And the very, very best ambassadors appreciate com 
country B. The very best ambassadors speak the language of country B, preferably without even an accent from country A. They, they appreciate the, the richness and the culture of this city, the nuances and the history, the political system and navigating it ins and outs. That's what good ambassadors do. But the very, very best ambassadors don't simply love and appreciate country B where they're stationed, but they never forget that their job there in country B is to serve the interests and values of country A in those places. So what I want to tell you is that you may, God may have stationed you on the edge of hell and he brought you there for a reason, not to just soak it up and become one of them and become Babylonian just like they wanted you to. No, you are there to represent the values and the interests of country A, your citizenship, which is in heaven. God has carried you to the edge of hell to bring heaven back on into it. Imagine this, right, where the people are just so confused. God, how could you have let Babylon, of all places, overtake Jerusalem? We had a good thing going. Why couldn't you just leave us alone? Why couldn't you just let us have our little holy huddle? And God is saying, that's not good enough. I will destroy that in order to carry you to the edge of hell to bring heaven here. And while you're here, you best not become part of the problem. And this is what it's going to be so hard is because there are things, there are aspects of this culture that God is asking us to hold back from and God is asking us to resist. And if you can't immediately think of what it is about this place that you're in or about the people you work with or the neighborhood that you live in, if you can't think about what God is asking you to resist in that, that's not a good sign. I'll just think of one. One kind of easy one that I noticed having kids and you don't have to have kids, you just be around kids and you get it. If you want a firsthand experience serving our kids program, it's going to be amazing. Change some lives because they need it and we need it because kids, right? Kids, they don't have to be taught to say me too. We teach them to say daddy and mommy. We definitely teach them to say thank you and please. We don't have to teach them to say me, 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 I want it. They sort of get that on their own. And when we get older, that gets worse, not better. We cover it better, but that gets worse, not better. How this plays out in how we think about power and influence, something to be served as something where our interests uh, get to be trumped over everybody else's. Uh, money and the stuff that I have is mine and I get to spend it on what I want to spend it because it belongs to me. And sex, it is my body. I can do with it whatever I want to and it's not up to anybody else to tell me what I can or can't do or should or shouldn't do because it's me and mine. But the gospel comes into this. Our citizenship in heaven comes into this and saying you are in fact not your own. You are bought with a price. Power and influence in which you do have is modeled after Jesus Christ, who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to share his power and to share his influence for the well-being and welfare of all people. And the money that you have is not yours or mine. The money that we have 
and doesn't belong to us at all because nothing even belongs to us. We are merely managers or stewards of what belongs to God. You see how this is in direct conflict every time. There's something to pull back from. There's something to resist in the culture. And I think we have to name those things and step away from those things in order to best bring heaven to hell and inject something of Christ into this world. Okay, engage it, resist something there. And then he throws a curveball because this one is out there. This one that people did not see coming. Let me read it again. Verse seven where he says, also, and this is the underline, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. And he says, pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, it's one thing to engage. It's, a, it's one thing to resist something that doesn't belong there. But now you're asking me, now you're asking me to pray for it? No, God, no, that's too much. I pray for Jerusalem. Psalm 122 says that I pray for Jerusalem. I pray for heaven. I pray for the good places in this world. I pray for Jerusalem. I pray for the leaders of the city. I pray for the economy of the city. This is all Psalm 122. I pray for the safety of the city and for the people of the city. I pray for the city of Jerusalem. I do not pray for the prosperity of the city of Babylon because I want to see it destroyed. The word that's used, peace and prosperity, it's one word in the Hebrew language, which is what this was written in. It's a familiar one to some of us who've maybe been around church for a little while, though not in the context of Babylon, because the word that's used here is shalom. Seek the shalom of Babylon. You're like, you know, uh-uh. God, do you have any idea? Do you have any idea what that means? To, to seek out the peace. And not just like the absence of war, but, but to seek out a kind of peace where economically the city is working for everybody, every one of those stinking Babylonians. Do you have any idea what you're asking me to do to, to seek out the shalom of the leaders of the city, the peace and the prosperity of the people who are in charge of an awful place like, like Babylon? Do you know what you're asking me to do in praying for the safety of these people? Did you know that months ago they came and they destroyed Jerusalem? They sent their armies and they ripped the walls down. Didn't you know, God? That these are terrible people. Did you know that every single one of us could write down the name of somebody that they killed in their quest to dominate this city? Didn't you know, God, that I can't pray for the peace and prosperity of a people? I cannot, I cannot pray for their well-being because, God, they are my enemies. And God says, I know. I was reading this in Romans chapter five. Just listen to it if you would. Where Paul writes to the church in Romans, the church, and he might as well be writing to encounter a church and he says, didn't you know that while we, every one of us, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Have you ever thought of yourself as an enemy of God, that when our wills and God's wills don't line up and we want to see it done our way and we want to manage our influence or our money or our resources or our bodies my way, that that becomes in conflict with God's ways and that conflict we call sin. 
And that conflict we call disobedience and unrighteousness and unholiness and and all these other words, but that conflict doesn't belong there. And God says, it's because of that. I am holy and you are not. And it's because what we want is at odds with each other that makes us naturally enemies against one another. But God said, I don't want to be your enemy. And it was while you were still on the opposing side, while you were still wanting your way and not my way, that I sent my son to die on the cross for you. So that while we were still natural enemies, I found a way to bridge that gap and bring you near to me. Dear friends of Encounter Church, when you go out of this place and you carry that light of Christ, hundreds and hundreds of little lights of Christ scattering out into the communities where you are from. You go into a place that you love, not because they're likable, not because it's a scenic place, not because there's good job opportunities or it's a good place to meet someone new or raise a family. You love where you live because Jesus Christ died for the people there. You love where you live, and I love where I live because God has loved us unconditionally. And we do that, each one of us. And when we band together like this, we're not just a a, a set of individuals, but we're a community called a church. And this community is called Encounter Church. And Encounter Church becomes like an identity all of its own so that we together can love where this church lives in a particular neighborhood. And so when we do something like rebrand and get a new logo, something that represents our mission of worship, connect, and grow to become like Jesus, and we have different ideas out there, we wanna take all of these ideas, these, these finalists of ideas, and because we love where we live, we don't decide on this just on our own, but we take those ideas to the community, and we talk to the people who work at the businesses around here, and who live in the neighbor, in the homes and apartments around here, and we ask them, hey, hey, which of these do you like? What would you like and prefer to drive past every single day, several times a day, on your way out and on your way back? And they're just so blown away because nobody else, no other institution on earth would care to ask what they thought. And in doing so, we demonstrate just a tiny fraction of the love that God has for the people who live around here and for each and every one of us. And it leaves an impression as we continue to have these conversations and as community leaders start gathering around and they start asking the question, hey, we've got a local, um, local police officer coming in to teach us about crime prevention and maybe some traffic stuff. We don't really have a, a neighborhood center. It's a true story. But we know that you have like this cool like little coffee shop cafe area. Would it be okay if we invited people from the neighborhood and used your cafe as our community center? And I think absolutely because it doesn't even belong to us. Nothing does. But it is some, it is one small way that we can demonstrate the unconditional love of God right here where we live. Dear friends, engage your community, resist what doesn't belong, and love it unconditionally as God has loved you. Stand up and let's pray together.
Our gracious God in heaven, you did not remain in heaven because you cared so badly for us, your natural born enemies. But God, you found a way to reconcile us back to you. God, we ask that you make us those reconcilers, those ambassadors representing your values and your interests here in the country and in the city and in the neighborhoods and the schools in which we live, work, and learn. God, by your Holy Spirit, give us this, this insight into how best to connect with the people around us, how to connect and engage with them, Lord, because not simply to to do that in order to save someone, God, but to do that because we ourselves are saved. And in doing so, Lord, we bring a tiny slice of your heaven here in this earth. God, may you be exalted and lifted high. In your son's name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.
your son to die for me by your grace i've been set free jesus christ you're all i need you are more than enough for me you sent your son to of the city to which I have carried you. So don't forget, stop by the starting point desk to pick up the book, The Art of the Neighboring. It's going to be make a great impact on your life and our community. So we'll see you guys next week for part four of We Are Four.